major truths from minor prophets. And so I invite you this morning to turn to Micah, the prophecy of Micah. Do not be ashamed to use the table of contents. These minor prophets are all kind of bunched together, but it can be difficult to find them um, because there's 12 of them all smashed together. So turn into Micah, and we're going to be specifically in chapter 6 today. Now, it was the most famous preacher and famous sermon ever preached in what is modern-day America, in North America. The preacher was Jonathan Edwards, pastor of the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts, and a future president of Princeton College. The date was Saturday, July 8, 1741, and the place was Enfield, Connecticut, where Edwards had been invited to speak. Enfield was not a religious place. The Great Awakening had touched surrounding towns, but not Enfield. With curiosity and nonchalance, the crowd entered the meeting house to hear Edwards speak. Then Edwards began. He did not sound like the evangelist of today. He wrote out his sermons, much like I've written mine today, word for word, and then usually just read them. Listening to Edwards was like listening to a lecturer who made his case in an even-tempered, intellectually demanding style in which he tried to develop each step of his argument logically. The title of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And his text was Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Their foot shall slide in due time. Edwards explained his text. As he that walks in slippery places in every moment is liable to fall, he cannot foresee one moment whether he shall stand or fall the next. And when he does fall, he falls at once without warning, which is also expressed in Psalm 73, 18-19. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou casteth them down into destruction. How they are brought into desolation as in a moment. The bow of God's wrath is bent. The arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart. And strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus, all you that have never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon our souls, all of you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a state of new and before altogether unexperienced light in life are in the hands of an angry God. As Edwards preached, members of the audience cried out, What shall I do to be saved? Oh, I am going to hell. Some crowded toward the pulpit and began begging him to stop. The noise was so loud that at one point during the sermon, Edwards asked that everyone please be quiet so that he could be heard. He ended the sermon by saying, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of the Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. 
And the little town of Enfield was never the same. That's how the Great Awakening happened in America, or on American soil, was through preaching messages like these. Now, it's important for us to note that people did not speak to one another the way that Jonathan Edwards was preaching to them, much the same way that preachers today use alliteration, or we all start our points with the letter P, and so you don't then go home and say, to your kids, okay, we're going to pick up the toys and practice our math and put on our pajamas. You know, we don't take it and then begin to talk in these weird ways. But in the same way that Edwards, in the same way that happens today with preaching, so it was in the days of Micah, that there were ways that he spoke that the people didn't speak every day. But there was something about the way he spoke, really something about the message he spoke and whose authority it was that that message accompanied, that spoke to the hearts of the people. And so today as we look at Micah and we turn to prophecies like this one, I feel in some ways like we're looking at abstract art. Old Testament scholars teach us that what we're looking at in Micah in all seven chapters, is a work of literary art. There are chiastic structures and metaphors and hyperbole and poetry and imagery. But at the end of the day, I think that you and I, in 2021, struggle with reading prophecy and really understanding what it is that we're looking at and really being impacted by the, by the different literary devices that are used to really pack the punch. So before we go any further, let's just admit that before God, that apart from Him speaking today through His Word, we'll miss it. We won't hear. We won't be impacted by this timeless Word that even though it's thousands of years old, still is relevant for us today. So will you pray with me? Father, I pray that today, through the preaching of Your Word, that our hearts would be changed that as it was in the days of Jonathan Edwards and as it was in the days of Micah, that through your word proclaimed, your word, that our lives would come into an interaction, into a moment in which we experience you, the living God. A moment in which our hearts are set right. Either in falling down in worship again or turning away from our wickedness and returning to you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Lord, today, in such a way that only you get the credit, would you speak today through this ancient text to a modern audience in a way that has the same effect as it was intended then, a return to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the most important aspects of a healthy relationship is this, clear expectations. You see, most difficulties in relationships arise from unmet expectations. People doing or not doing the thing that you expected them to do or you not doing the thing they expected you to do. For example, if you expected a friend to comment 
on that Facebook post that you made about a really terrible day or a recent diagnosis. But you see they're commenting on other things, but they don't even give you the little sad face, the little button on Facebook. Then you're upset because you expected them to do more. You get frustrated on a Saturday morning with your spouse because you had envisioned Saturday morning going one way and she or he had planned another day. And so all of a sudden, because of unmet expectations, neither of you knowing what the other expected, there's now a tension, there's now a rift. But is that how it is with God and us? Are we constantly disappointing and frustrating God to the point of annihilating us? I mean, truly bringing about his wrath as is spoken of throughout the entire witness of Scripture, all because of unmet expectations? Yes. But is it God who is really the one left holding the bag of fault for his anger toward us because he failed to clearly communicate his expectations? No. You see, God has communicated clearly what it is that he expects of us. He's been very clear about what is right and good. And it is we, all of us, who have turned away from what is right and good and true and light. Today, we look at one such verse that brings incredible clarity to what it is that God expects of us. And I think that you'll find that today, as you look at this passage, that it resonates with a modern ethos, kind of the spirit of our own age, of crying out with some of these same words. But I think we have to be careful that we allow the biblical text to define these words and to define their application so that we rightly pursue these things in accordance with God's word and not in opposition or some other direction. So I invite you now to stand in reading of God's good and holy word. And today, I want us out of all of the incredible prophecy of Micah to look at one verse as a key verse today to understand what it is that God expects of us. So beginning and reading only from verse 8 of chapter 6. Verse 8 of chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you. To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word, would you please drive it deep into our understanding of who you are and then today to help us to see the mystery of Christ and how it is that we might walk in these ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Aren't you grateful that this verse is straightforward? You see, one of the things that can really be at odds, and I'll be honest, I'm the guilty party in my own marriage, is when you're not direct when you don't say actually what you want oftentimes on a Saturday morning if I had one vision of how the morning was going to go Cole will know I'm disappointed that the morning isn't going my way but she likely will not know what it is that I wanted because for some reason the way that I'm wired I struggle to say what it is that exactly I want whereas Cole is more assertive and is able to communicate that I've come to value that greatly in my 18 years of marriage because if she says things are good, then things are good. 
If she says there's, they're not good, then they're not good. And it's real easy. So we're connected in a great way. Me, she's like, are you good? Are you good? And a lot of times I'll say, yeah, I'm good, but I'm not so good. God says very assertively, very clearly, exactly what he expects. He doesn't mask it. He doesn't do passive-aggressive communication. He says very plainly what it is that he expects. So I want you to see the bar established by God. What is it, mankind, that he expects of us? To act justly, to love faithfulness, to walk humbly with your God. Acting justly. Micah's list of core requirements first focus on acting justly toward others. Since the people that he is speaking to are covenant partners, that is, they are in the promise of God to one another, they must demonstrate a mutual respect for one another within the community. Justice describes right social relationships between people based on God's view of what is appropriate. These behavior patterns were described in covenant documents, legally binding documents provided by God in Exodus chapters 20 through 23, covering both legal and normal social relationships in and outside of the courts. I mean, listen to the description of what it is that God says is justice. He says, such instructions include protections for foreigners, those that would come in among the Israelites, the poor, slaves, orphans, and widows who could all easily be wronged or taken advantage of by others. This characteristic of justice prohibits violent acts of physical abuse or any kind of behavior that attempts to take something that rightfully belongs to another. When people in Micah's audience forcibly confiscate other people's land or possessions, and I want you to see it. Turn over to Micah chapter 2 to see as God is indicting his people and what it is that he sees as injustice among them, what he says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light they accomplish it because the power is in their hands. They covet, that means they desire fields, and they seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. And then... Turn with me down in chapter 2 to verse 8. But recently my people have risen up like an enemy, an enemy to one another. You strip off the splendid robe from those who are passing by, passing through confidently like those returning from war. You force the women of my people out of their comfortable homes and you are taking my blessing from their children forevermore. God is indicting his people saying that you're taking their land. You're looking at one another as a, as a means of exploitation. That what you have, that's rightfully mine, and then taking it. Because what we know from history during this period is that both Israel and Judah were experiencing a time of great prosperity. It was, a, it was the best of times. The stock market was up. Investments were, 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 were really performing well. All of these things were happening, but it was on the backs of poor farmers. There were people more in the rural context outside of the city that were paying the price so that those in town could enjoy luxury and living. 
And as the rich accumulated more, it had this effect. It only made them want more. You would think it would do the opposite, right? That's what we often think today, that if I'll have more, then I'll be more content. Does that work out? Think about your own life. The more possessions, the more wealthy you've increased, did it make you want less or did it make you want more? You see, that's one of the dangers of material wealth. That's one of the dangers of accumulating assets and resources in this life is that it often turns our heart toward only wanting more. And we see that pattern throughout Scripture. So please don't hear me saying if you have two of something, then you're a sinner. It's not what I'm saying. I am saying be on guard that having two of something likely makes you want three of something. And having three of it makes you want four. And if you give a, a, a moose a muffin, you know, that, that whole book series, it's true. And so that's what God's Word is warning us about. It's calling us to be on guard against these things because when the people have the stuff, they continue to take even more. But worse than going after maybe an, a rivalry nation, you know, we look back historically and we see these warring nations against the people of God, groups like the Philistines. It's not the Philistines that they're going up against. It's their very own brother and sister. They're going after one another. And God says, this is an injustice. And I am opposed to injustice. Going on, he says, treating people inhumanely. Turn over to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, just to get a sense of the language. This is some of that literary device that Micah is using to really bring it home. We don't know for sure that they were practicing cannibalism, but what God is saying explicitly is the way they're treating each other is you're devouring one another. He says it this way, Then I said, now listen, leaders of, of Jacob, and notice that it's the leaders he's speaking to here. It's the people that you would think that are in the temple and in control that ought to be people of integrity. He indicts them. Now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? What is justice? You hate good and love evil. You tear off people's skin and strip their flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh with a cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. And that's evocative language. Micah is really communicating what you are doing to one another is likened to cannibalism. And certainly the leaders of Israel had said, oh, please, we, we, are you kidding? We're eating, you know, some of the finest beef. Kobe beef over here for us. That's what we're eating. We're not eating people. But what they don't realize is that to get to that fattened calf, there were farmers out in the field that were starving to death so that they could have their steak. And that's what God's saying. That's what he's indicting them for is your treatment of one another within the family of God is not acceptable and they are unjust relationships. Since the entire nation was in a united covenant partnership with God, it's important that the people within that group not mistreat others who are essential members of the body of Christ. Now we can look back in our own history, right? And look back, some of the, the tensions remaining very vividly to this day of race relationships and the injustice that's gone on. You see, it wasn't just within American history that we look back and we see an injustice. 
done against African Americans who were slaves and then were granted freedom, but it was a conditional freedom, and it was even more conditional in the South and not experienced, and we've seen all of these things carry on. But that's not where I want to focus my attention. Instead, it was within the people of God where the injustice was most, I think, disgusting to God our Father. Because it's one thing for the unbelieving world who have definitions of what is right and wrong that just really are their fancy. It's what they feel in the moment. But we, we as the people of God, have had the word of God. And listen to the description, confiscating lands, destroying one another, all of those things. And you look back at the history of even what people within the church have practiced to one another, and you see very quickly, you see very quickly that we, even though we've advanced by thousands of years in technology, by thousands of years in, in education, by thousands of years, we have not graduated a sinful heart. We are just as guilty as the people of God then. And today, if we are not mindful, we could very well position ourselves in such a way as to repeat history in ways that are unjust and uncalled for within the family of, of God. I want to thank you First Baptist New Orleans, for being conscious of these things. As I've had conversations, there is a desire that we as the people of God live in accordance with God's word, that we be patient and understanding with one another, that we consider one another's stories and to understand the things that are facing one another within our own body and to be mindful of these matters of injustice as they exist, especially within the household of God. And you say, well, Chad, I really don't think that that's going on. Just this week, as I spoke to Pastor Fred Luter, Pastor of Franklin Avenue Baptist Church, who served as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention in 2012, elected here in New Orleans when we hosted that meeting, he shared with us at an administrative council meeting this week, so we were just sitting around the table and talking about matters of racism and a couple of those sort of things that were going on within SBC life, within Southern Baptist Convention life. He said, you know, when I became the president, I received multiple letters from churches signing their name to it, that said, we are leaving the Southern Baptist Convention because a black man is leading this convention and we want nothing to do with it. Those are Southern Baptist churches. And we might can say, well, that's just, you know, that's just a couple, they're not really part of us. They were part of us. They're not anymore. But I want us to understand that we need to, to be aware of these realities in this decade. We're, we're not even 10 years removed from that moment where people were sending hateful letters to a beloved pastor in our own city saying, we don't want anything to do with the Southern Baptist Convention because a black man is leading it. There are issues. And so please be understanding to one another. When our black brothers and sisters say, hey, there's still issues we need to talk about, trust me, there's still issues that we do need to talk about. And we can do that in a meaningful way, led by God's word that results in the expanse of his kingdom. Not a division within the church, but in a way that brings us together even more into the riches of being his people. Because remember, every time a prophet confronted the people of God, it was not to further drive the wedge. It was to bring about a reconciliation among the people of God. And so please hear, hear from the heart of a pastor who looked, overlooked those offenses. That's what I love about Pastor Luter. He overlooked every one of those offenses and rather than making that his mantra during those days, he spoke a message of unity. He took the high road. And I praise God for men like him.
Today, there are many injustices that I could take time to confront like racism. But you know what? That's not the only injustice. That's not the only thing even happening in the city of New Orleans that is a matter of injustice, even within the people of God, or that we look out among our own communities and say, that's not right. So I want to invite you to do something this morning. This is the audience participation moment of this service. I want you to pull out your cell phone. And there's going to be a number up on the screen right here, okay? 504-290-0741. And here's what I want you to do. Right now, there is likely a matter of injustice that really bothers you. It might be the way that you see children being cared for in our education system. And maybe you feel like there's certain groups that are overlooked. I I love a dear friend of mine whose son was autistic who realized that there were lots of barriers to children with autism being able to learn in the public school environment. And so she set to work about kind of dealing with some of those matters so that there were more provisions for children with autism. So that's a specific example of maybe something that you see as an injustice for a specific group. I want you to text in what it is that you see that bothers you, that you say would be an injustice in our city, in our nation, in the world that really weighs on your heart. It could be racism. It could be, you know, uh, the the treatment of, of, of widows or orphans. It could be foster care system and the things that, 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 that are difficult in that department. So like whatever it is, I want to hear from you. So this afternoon, I'm going to look at those text responses and, and I may begin a dialogue, but I want to hear from you, the church, because Noah Green and I, your missions pastor, we really see this as a moment of, of, of a fresh start into our compassion ministries. That has been a hallmark of this church, our care effect ministries But as many of you know, many of those came to a screeching halt, and there's been great difficulty in getting back into some of those ministries. But you know how many of those ministries were birthed, how they started? It's because you, you as members of this church said, that's not right. There's something wrong right there, and we need to do something about it. That's how Fuel the Future began. You looked and you saw a problem that kids going home on the weekends and going without food, that's not right. We need to do something about that. And so you took action and formed a ministry to treat that need. So I want to hear from you. That's a way that right now, from your seat in this moment, you can text a word or a paragraph or a novel. I mean, whatever you want to communicate, you go ahead. It'll go into that, and I'll be reading those this afternoon. Because the call is to act justly. Let me be clear, I plan to listen today, and I have no clue what will come from this, but I really hope the outcome for us as a church will be obedience to the command of our Lord to do justice, to do justly, to do it how God defines justice in his word. Second, God instructs us to love mercy. The English Standard Version translates this to love kindness. The the Christian Standard Bible that I'm reading from today says to love faithfulness. And I love that they're kind of grappling with how do you really capture this word, this Hebrew word, and really express all that it means. Old Testament scholar Gary Smith notes, loving to maintain steadfast covenant loyalty will impact a person's attitude to worshiping God on the Sabbath leaving the land fallow every seven years, releasing slaves according to the Mosaic instructions, caring for the poor, giving a tithe each year. And he's speaking specifically of the Old Testament application of this call to love mercy. 
If there is no commitment to remain faithful to this divine covenant relationship, then covenant life will cease to exist. Understood in this way, this Hebrew word is a broad term that encompasses much more than merely acting mercifully toward others. You see, oftentimes when we think about loving mercy or loving faithfulness or loving kindness, we think about how we respond when we pull up at a red light or off of an exit ramp in New Orleans and there's a person there with a sign. That's often where we think of mercy. Do I give money or not? And I love that there are many of you, I've received emails from some of you saying, I wrestle with that moment. I I wrestle with how do I show mercy appropriately? There's part of me that just does want to pull out my wallet and give money, but then I'm also wanting to be mindful of, of doing something different. You're wrestling with what that is, but we cannot allow loving mercy to only be what we do when we pull up to the corner of City Park and Canal Boulevard. That can't be the the end of it. Canal Street, I'm sorry. Is to be able to say, well, do I give money or not? Because God is speaking to the way that we love mercy within this body. And I love, I love, because I get to be on on the front row. Man, I wish all of you could join me every day to see the way that you love mercy. The way that you act kindly to one another. The extreme ways of love that I have seen you demonstrate to one another within this body. That when you learn of a need, how you run to meet it. How when there's the opportunity to serve one another in practical, tangible ways, you say, I'll sign up for that. I'll be there. And then we can count on you to do that. You see, The reality is as we look at the context of Micah, he is speaking to our love within the body, within the people of God. Now, we have all felt the difference when someone is doing something for us because they love us, right? And desire to help us versus when they're doing something out of an obligation and almost seem mad at you because they feel bound to help you. Nobody likes to be on the receiving end of that. Now, God is here saying, my desire is that you will find an inner delight, that you will love kindness. You will love showing mercy. You will love being faithful. My desire is that you will find inner delight in doing what is right in my sight. Regardless of how inconvenient it is, how costly it is, how much time it takes, how insignificant the impact may seem to you. Hear me. It is better to obey with a bad attitude than to disobey with a good attitude. But God is inviting you and I to enjoy obedience, to love it, to love the kindness that he has given us to enjoy in this family. Trusting that the things he calls us to are not only for his glory, but they're for our good. We're going to thrive as we love mercy. I love to hear the testimonies of men and women here at this church who have said, we will go into the difficult places of our city in order to do ministry. Many of you have heard personal testimonies of different individuals who said that when I first signed up, For example, a woman signing up to do inward who was scared to death, overwhelmed at the task, timid, 
even somewhat concerned to, to pray in front of others and all of those things, but knowing that this is what God was calling her to do. Because God calls us to love mercy. And that mercy not to just remain within the walls of this church, but to overflow into the streets of our city. And so she linked arms with some of her sisters in Christ to begin doing this ministry down on Bourbon Street and going down there. And as she did, you want to know what happened? Her love for mercy increased. It was small as it began. Yeah, I know this is right. This is what I need to do. But then as she linked arms and began to do it with her sisters in Christ, her capacity increased. Her, her, her love began to grow for this mercy ministry, for this compassion ministry. She began to love doing this, began looking forward to it. And that's what happens every time I see a person do something like a short-term mission trip. They may start off with saying, yeah, I know, I know that, you know, they're, they're, how can they respond to the gospel if they never hear? And then when that person says that first time I'll do a mission trip, oh man, they are overwhelmed. What's it going to be like? How am I going to travel? The food, the accommodations, I mean, like all of these things are on there. But what I've witnessed again and again and again, just like this lady with Inward, is once they come in and they step in and they begin to interact and they get down on their knees with kids, they're playing with kids, and they see the beauty of another people group who maybe look different than them, they have a different color skin, and they enjoy the hospitality and the warmth and the love of these people, and then they see people come to faith in Jesus who've never heard the gospel before, their capacity, their capacity to love mercy, the mercy of God poured out on people who are desperate for it, it increases. And then they want more of it. And they want to do it here because they've seen God do it there. And then they want to go back there because they've been so excited about what God's doing here. And you just see their capacity getting larger and larger and larger. But it all starts with a person saying, yes, I will act mercifully. I will love kindness. God, increase my love for kindness. You see, it starts with the small, little act of saying yes. Every time Jesus called a disciple to follow him, it all started with one step. I mean, think about that. That journey that transformed their life, it started in a moment with just one step in the direction of Jesus. And that's what God's word is calling you and I to. It's just to say yes and to say, whatever the next step is, I will take it in obedience. And that leads right into this final point, to walk humbly with your God. You see, that's what God's calling us to, is to a walk with him. But you know what really produces humility in the life of a person? Is when they realize it's not them. You know, sometimes I think that that's why some of the disciples struggled at times with, with pride. We see it in some of the disciples like Peter and James and John. Is that Jesus sent them out at one point to go out, but in his authority to cast out demons and to do things. And all of a sudden it was like, we've got the power. And they're doing these things, and that led to a pride that led them away from Christ to where then he had to rebuke them. He had to correct them and bring them back in. And then we see, you know, Peter certainly being one of those sent out and doing miracles in Jesus' name and denying him at the cross. 
Then we see Christ restoring him and calling him to walk with him humbly again and to feed his sheep. You know, it's an important thing for us to really grasp that what God is calling us to is a life, a life lived in humility. Were these things done, this acting justly and loving faithfulness are done not in our own power, but in the power that he alone can supply. You see, the reality is Gary Smith again notes, the final requirement is related to a person's humble walk with God. The Hebrew root described a life walk that is not proud, but is attentive, careful, and prudent to follow God's will. Translating Translations of this phrase include to walk circumspectly or wisely. This suggests that Micah is warning against a careless or presumptuous doing things our own way. In other words, defining justice on our own and then doing justice our way. Of saying what is merciful or what is faithful and then doing it our way. But instead, being attentive to what God's will is. Gary Smith goes on, such a walk with God is humble in that it puts a person's will in a secondary position and gives a prominent attention to doing his will. In some sense, this requirement is the broadest of the three. For if one does this, walk humbly with God, one will certainly treat others justly and faithfully maintain all the covenant responsibilities of loving faithfulness. Summarized, Micah's delineation of God's requirement is noteworthy insofar as it includes no negative statements about what is forbidden from the Israelites. He doesn't say what not to do. He says what to do. It presents a positive case of what God thinks is best for humankind. And chances are you're here today and you would agree with these things. It is the key to a full life within the covenant. It draws attention to the main things that matter and consequently ignores the petty attitudes of trying to please God by bribery through more or bigger sacrifices, something he condemns even in Micah. God's radical requirements are more, are more comprehensive and more penetrating than the casual deed of just bringing an animal and sacrificing it in the temple. His covenant relationship lays a claim on every human relationship. In other words, if you say God is my God, then he says to you, prove it in your love for one another. His covenant relationship calls everyone to act in a loyal submission in the covenant agreement and desires that every attitude of selfishness be prudently submitted to God's will. This high calling requires discipline and full commitment on the part of anyone who wants to be part of God's holy nation. And yet, it is the height of this calling that keeps us at a distance. Because if you and I are honest, we look at this to act justly. We have acted unjustly and in the worst way. Because what justice is, is to give to one who is owed what he is owed. That is justice. And to God is owed all glory and all honor, all praise 
you and I have turned our hearts to many things to give glory and honor and praise to. To God is owed rightfully obedience. You and I have profaned the name of a holy God and have given him far less obedience, far less respect, far less worship than even we realize we have obtained and given to another. This idea of loving faithfulness, we would say that we've, we've done that in part. What about the times that we have not? That is to withhold from God, who is the covenant maker with us, his people. It is to offend him. And so the message of Micah 6, 8 should be in some ways defeating to us rather than just check, check, check. It should be, I've missed the mark, I've missed the mark, I've missed the mark. And that's where Micah's message in 6.8 suddenly becomes clear that it's not the main message of Micah's prophecy. You see, the reason we often approach Micah 6.8 as the most important verse is because it looks good on a picture. It looks good sewed on a pillow. It's something that we say, okay, I agree with justice. I agree with faithfulness. I want to walk humbly with God. But if you and I are not careful, we think that we have attained those things. That that's, those are boxes that we have checked when those things are actually the marks we have missed that bring us then to the central structure of Micah. You see, Professor David Dorsey says that chapters 4 and 5 are actually the heart from a chiastic structure of Micah. These two chapters are a proclamation of what the Lord will do. Isn't that good news? That in the midst of God saying, this is my standard, and of indicting them for having missed the standard, he declares in the midst of their sinfulness what he will one day do in order to bring about a just righteousness that produces humility to walk with him forever. Those two chapters are a proclamation of what the Lord will do. And these chapters speak of all nations coming to the house of the God of Jacob. They speak of the end of all war. Turn with me over to chapter 4 and begin looking at verse 3. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up sword against nation and they will never again train for war. They speak of healing the lame the gathering of those driven away, the rescue of the afflicted. They speak, chapters 4 and 5, of the redemption of God's people and the rescue from their enemies. They speak, chapters 4 and 5, of the brilliance of God's plan to establish His people as indestructible. They speak of a ruler in Israel coming from Bethlehem. Matthew quotes Micah chapter 5 as he speaks about why Jesus was born in Bethlehem, one who was from of old, from ancient days. This ruler shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and the people under his rule shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And these chapters speak of the final and complete destruction of all of God's enemies, 
all of those who have not come under his rule and reign as God's leader, the ruler of Israel, the good shepherd, the prince of peace. And who is he? He is King Jesus. He is worthy of our allegiance. He is worthy because he is the son of God who died on the cross to pay the full consequence for your sin and for mine. He died because you and I deserve death. He was buried and on the third day, God raised him from the grave. He was seen by many witnesses and then he ascended into heaven from which one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. Scripture is clear that God our Savior describes, desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the reality is this, that when we look at chapter 6, verse 8, we see Jesus. He alone, he alone acted justly. He and he alone loved faithfulness to his father. And he, he alone and he supreme walked humbly with his God. That's the beauty of these passages and these prophecies. Is they clearly confront you and I with a standard that in our pride, we think we can't attain. But the message of the Bible is that you and I have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we are in need of one to come. One who was promised. One who was promised to come to a specific time, to a specific place, to a city called Bethlehem. A season that we separate that we celebrate, even as you look around and you see the beauty of this room. And I thank those volunteers that helped make that happen. To be able to look and to see what it is we begin to celebrate was this coming, the advent of Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus. And so beginning next week, we begin this special season of Advent. But I want you to see where it began. With these promises uttered over hundreds of years through the prophets of one who would come, of one who would come, of one who would come. He would come to save his people. And he would do it with justice. He would do it with faithfulness. He would do it in humility. So much humility that he died naked on a cross for you and for me. Oh, what love. Oh, what incredible love. The justice of God satisfied, the mercy of God poured out, all in the humility Jesus Christ crucified for you and for me. Oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? And so we worship him today. Will you stand with me as we sing in worship of this great gospel? And if you're here today, trusting Christ is something that you want to do. You want to know what it means to trust and to follow, to take that first step. I invite you to come. I want to spend time with you this morning.